Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Miguel Delaney, the chief football writer for The Independent in London. We've had some great guests lately, including Paul Tenorio, Daryl DK, and Courtney Stith and Andre Carlisle. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. You can binge all eight episodes to your heart's content. Now, here's my interview with Miguel Delaney. Our guest now is Miguel Delaney, the chief football writer for The Independent in the UK. You can find him on Twitter at Miguel Delaney, easily enough. Miguel, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, lots to talk about. It's a really busy time of the year, a really fun time of the year. Uh, we're talking on Saturday morning and coming out Monday morning. So we'll miss this weekend's FA Cup semis and some Premier League games. But I want to look at sort of the big picture of the Premier League first. I mean, it certainly appears that Man City will win the league and, and Man United will finish second. But there's a wild race for the other two top four spots I was kind of surprised last week when I went through the rest of the games and ended up on my end with West Ham and Liverpool getting those two spots just ahead of Chelsea. Obviously, a lot of surprises happen at the end of the season. If you were handicapping the race in the Premier League, which two teams would you have finishing now, in third and fourth? Uh, <laughs> the fact you've come up with West Ham is an interesting one because literally every single weekend I look at West Ham and, yeah, this is going to be the weekend it drops off. And then they go and win. I suppose Leicester being such a crunch game. I'm going to give a slightly dull answer in that I still think it'll end up being the four wealthiest sides that finish top four. Um, It'll be obviously Manchester City, Manchester United are, are, I mean, I suppose they're not just secure in second. They've been suddenly kind of getting that bit closer to City. And then I'm going to go Chelsea and Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool just seem to be coming to a little bit of form, the result against Real Madrid notwithstanding. Uh, and I think I kind of ground out that win against Aston Villa with that late goal. And Chelsea, I just think they... Now, I suppose the fact that we're fighting on three fronts could affect them. But I just think the depth of their squad is so good. And I felt like they had that kind of... Just kind of jolt of chemistry with the change of manager. Uh, and I, got, I, I remember looking at stats for this about uh, a month ago. Because I, th- I thought this was pretty significant given the unique nature of this season. And it's how it's basically the most congested calendar we've ever seen. But... There was like, oh, Chelsea's most important players, the ones they would generally use the most, they played something like a thousand minutes less than their counterparts at Liverpool, at Manchester City, at Spurs. I mean, that's ten, nine to ten games. And that, over the course of a season, especially in the run-in, that, that makes a difference. So I just, I just feel they'll be fresher. And, and they've got so many options to bring in. But then again, I mean, as I say, every, every time you expect West Ham to fall away, they don't. Um, so it's certainly going to be interesting. But it's amazing as well. I don't think either of us would now consider Tottenham in any shape for that top four. And given in November, we were potentially talking about them as title winners. Yeah, I mean, that's a way of jumping into my next question then. You wrote a really inter- interesting story recently on Jose Mourinho and the steps that usually make up a Mourinho endgame at a club. What are some of those steps, and how close do you think we are to his end game at Spurs? I, I, I don't think we're... Well, I mean, yes, I, I was about to qualify and say I don't think we've seen all the steps. And yeah, I do think we're potentially close to the end. I think this League Cup final next week will decide an awful lot. I think it's why there's been a sense of stasis at the moment at Spurs, because 
while that League Cup final is there and while there's a chance of a trophy, the, the season can be spun as a positive. Um, although it's, it's, it is worth reflecting that the last two Spurs managers uh, who won trophies were Juan de Ramos and George Graham. That's in the last third. Both were the League Cup. And neither lasted too long afterwards and neither are considered exactly legends in Spurs history. Um, so I, I mean, it points to the symbolism of the FA or the, the League Cup in that sense. But yeah, it, is, it does just feel like everything is waiting on that. There is a chance it goes quite badly because I, I think we... We're not we're not fully into all of those steps. We're seeing little parts of of, of all of them. I mean, first of all, I suppose the one that, that 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 triggers it. This is obvious, but I think what's important about it is it's kind of it creates a self fulfilling cycle, which is when Mourinho starts to uh, encounter results that he basically doesn't know a way out of. Uh, like, cause, I mean, what, I mean, you've interviewed Mourinho a few times. We we've both covered him at his absolute peak, and when when he was at the top of his game. It wasn't just that he was winning; it was that his teams were so dominant. And alongside a lot of wilder, or wider changes in football, it feels like one of the things that he hasn't adapted to is how to get out of a bad run. And and it create that's what creates this cycle because one of his responses is usually something that doesn't really doesn't really sit well with the with the modern player. In contrast to say the Warriors, as Mourinho would quote it uh, from fifteen years ago: your Drogba figures, your Carvalhos, your Lucios, but. What he does is he basically he goes really hard on them in public, and that kind of sets off this cycle that creates a lot of these other steps where kind of you know issues happen in the squad. There's a bit of a back and forth between Mourinho and the squad. There's that kind of push and pull. More players go off him, and then it's like he um, so so there's that part we've already seen that, and it's not it's not just that he that he criticizes player errors or or that he kind of questions the kind of individual performances. It's like he starts calling into their entire football being, like he questions their, their moral character, as he did in Spurs. <laughs> like, you know, you know, talking about the... Uh, a, a key quote was basically that one about how they, they essentially ran less than Dynamo Zagreb. And like he said similar at his last four jobs. With kind of the, the most prominent example I picked out was from um, when he was at Real Madrid, which is really the first job that started to go badly for him. Uh, and he and he compared. I can't remember who the player was, but he compared it to a, a Davis Cup player. And like, you 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 can't tell me the players can't put in the same effort. And again, it's just calling into the character, just calling into question the character of these players in a way that just seems ultimately self defeating. Then, of course, as a whole, he starts absolving himself of blame, um, which which is pretty key. I think I, it, it almost feels like then all of the decision he makes. I mean, again, this is me speculating. <laughs> I should I should stress, but it, it feels like all the decision he makes are almost more about preserving his reputation rather than actually trying to correct the course of the of the season, the campaign. And then he starts making. It feels like he starts making. Well, well tied to that, he makes kind of strange team selections, and it's if almost be because he can't. He still hasn't figured out how to come out of these spells in a kind of more constructive way. It's as if his response is basically just kind of. Shock the players, right? Three of my best players are dropped. Here's a formation we've never played before. Naturally, of course, that doesn't work out. And in the following week, he goes straight back, brings all the three players back in. And it just kind of creates this uh, this cycle. Or as, as someone as Manchester United put it to me, just kind of toxic environment grows. Yeah, I mean, I did my first big story on Mourinho back in 2011. So he was just in his first season at Real Madrid, we did our first interviews for it in preseason. I went to visit him in Madrid. And at that point in time, he was kind of at the height of his powers. Um, you know, I remember writing about 
people asking, is this the best coach in any sport in the world? You know, he just won uh, Champions League with Inter. And at the time, and this is very different from today, but at the time, all of his ex-players loved him. Yeah. You know, it's almost it, like a, when you talk to them, it's almost like a cult. Like the, the, the way the awe they have for him. Yeah, I mean, and you remember like the the old video of when he was leaving uh, Inter and Mar- Marco Materazzi like finds him in the parking lot and and hugs him and he's crying and and that just isn't the case. We're, we're we have another you know we have Paul Pogba just a day or two ago yeah. coming after him again and and it. I, it's just so striking to me. He seen Mourinho seems to have lost that bond with players uh, and ex players who no longer seem to love him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think even beyond football or general sports coaching, I think there's a really fascinating human dimension. To this, I'd say. I mean, actually, you you asked me this right now. I, I I wanted to plug maybe one piece from last summer, which I did basically on why certain managers get past it, or what what why a coach basically becomes past it, why they're kind of old news in that sense. And I do think it's tied to the evolution of the game and the the, the methods that were once at the forefront obviously fall behind. But then a key to that is the next step, which is whether they adapt. Now. Obviously, everyone always points to the example of Alex Ferguson, but really that was part of his kind of historic genius, that he always adapted, that he was so fluid in that sense. I think what happens to the majority of managers and the majority of the absolute best coaches is they don't adapt because I think we've seen this with Mourinho now, obviously. I think we, from what I've heard, we've seen it, it's, it's happened with Rafa Benitez. It definitely happened with Arsene Wenger, where they start to experience struggles. And obviously, again, this is, I suppose, such a kind of a, a universally human thing. But I suppose most of their reputation and thereby their pride, and if you want to get really into, into it psychologically, their ego is wrapped up in how their specific methods made them the best. So it almost becomes about this thing, well, this pride of, well, no, I'm going to prove everyone wrong and my, I'm going to show my methods still work. So then they get into this cycle, where it, which I think we're seeing with Mourinho now. And I suppose it's all the more... Well, maybe not ironic with Mourinho, but I do, I do remember when he got appointed at Spurs again. I was at his uh, I was at his media day the um, when he did, when he did his his sit down with journalists and all the rest of it, and he made such a point of talking about I've taken eleven months out of the game since Manchester United. I've assessed what's you know the direction things in the game, things in my own game, and he spoke about how he's going to you know make changes, but ultimately he hasn't made enough. And in fact, you'd argue whether he's made any at all because he's so quickly slipped into old patterns and that applies from everything to how he deals with players as we've been talking about where uh, he, I mean his his uh, theory is or the one he likes is confrontational leadership where it's, it's basically this kind of passive aggressive management to provoke responses but obviously as we're saying that the modern player doesn't respond to that but also right down to the style of football in a, in a, in a football world where highly systemized pressing and proactive football reigns He's still playing something from 10, 15 years ago. And hence, we have so many of these matches where Spurs against inferior sides like Newcastle are being outplayed towards the game at the end of games. And they're basically hanging on. Yeah. Um, I do want to touch. We touched on Chelsea a little bit a second ago here. Obviously, Chelsea's still fighting for several trophies at this point. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, no matter what happens with Chelsea in the league, they certainly have upgraded under Thomas Tuchel and they're now set to face Real Madrid in the Champions League semifinals. 
the better defending part of this Chelsea team under Tuchel seems obvious, but are you seeing more to it than just better defending with what Tuchel is doing? Well, I, I think clearly, as you say, as you say from the, de- the defending, the structure of the team is right now. I mean, one, one of the main issues of Frank Lampard, it, it was almost, it, it was so bizarre. I mean, talk about repeating mistakes all the time. But the amount of times Lampard teams would get overrun in defensive midfield and they'd be caught in the break. So that's the first thing Tuchel has basically solved, and he's done it with structure. Now, I suppose you'd look at that defensive record and look at the fact that they haven't really exploded yet in attacking sense in, in terms of goals to say, okay, maybe it's just it's a bit it's more reactive, it's a bit more restrained. But I don't think that's the case. I, I think it's it's a case of this this squad basically learning Tuchel's approach, which is very close to Pep Guardiola's, because there ha- without the goals yet. There have been flashes in games and periods in games where they've been absolutely brilliant going forward. Some of the attacking play has been superb. Um, and I, they, 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 it felt like they really hit it in the game against Crystal Palace last week. And it's, uh, it's why I think, I mean, this season's probably a bit too early, although I do think they've got a good chance of the Champions League that will come on to, I suppose. But I, I do think they could put it up to City next season for the title. Let's talk about City. Um, they're going to win the league title going away. The trophy they really want is Champions League. PSG is next in the semis. How do you see that matchup, and how do you think Pep Guardiola might plan for it? Um, well, from a, from a purely football perspective, I, I know we're going to get into issues off the pitch shortly. From a purely uh, football perspective, I think it's it's fascinating, uh, especially because I mean, and this is related to what they are as clubs. Uh, they're two teams that feels like they it feels like this season they're finally kind of maybe tackling a certain neurosis about the Champions League. And again, now I know I know Paris Saint Germain got to the final under Tuca last season, but there was still a sense of last season that they they got a pretty favourable run, Paris Saint Germain. And then it was almost like the same as every other season prior to that. They still ended up going out, although in this case it was the final to the to, to the first kind of big club they played. Whereas now They've knocked out Bayern. They've knocked out Barcelona, even if it's a kind of a reduced Barcelona. And they do seem to have that resolve that you would associate with Maurizio Pochettino. And Pochettino did put it up to Pep Guardiola a lot in England, particularly at home. Spurs weren't such great travellers. He did win at Manchester City once. Um, so I do think this is... A, a just It couldn't be more of a 50-50 tie. Uh, I, I, I do think City are just... I mean... By nature of the fact, Guardiola's been there four years now. Poch is only there for a few months. They're just more of a systemized team. And I mean, City are almost a machine in that sense and how well everything works. And yet, they still have that one, I don't want to call it the kind of, um, <laughs> the exhaust port, Death Star flaw in terms of the kind of, but it is a little bit of a glass jaw in terms of how they, uh, how they can suddenly be got at by a quick break. Um and it's something Guardiola has been obsessed with, but you couldn't have. I mean, if you wanted players to specifically exploit a quick break or or that gap in the back, you couldn't pick more ideal players than Neymar and especially Kylian Mbappe. So I mean, City might have the better system, but I think PSG do have a good, well, a growing and pretty good system with I think two better players than arguably anyone City has. De Bruyne is probably the closest, although I still think as exceptionally is. Mbappe and Neymar when he's on form are on another level uh, so I, I do find that really difficult to call and I mean I mean, this is the amazing thing about City and where they are I mean they could well win another domestic treble and if they don't win the Champions League 
it won't feel like the season it should have been for them. I'm not going to say it will feel like a failure for them because another domestic treble is obviously you know huge. But as you say, we all know what they really want and particularly what Pep Guardiola really wants. Yeah, I mean, there's a football side to this semifinal between City and PSG. There's a lot more than just the football side, obviously. You have written a lot about the influence of the Middle East on football. And here we are now with the petrodollars of City versus the petrodollars of PSG, Abu Dhabi versus Qatar. What is the significance of this this matchup, this moment, and what it says about the forces influencing the sport right now? Oh, it's a landmark moment in, and really a signpost, essentially opening the door to an area that football has been headed for some time. Um, this isn't exclusive to Manchester City or Paris Saint-Germain, but ultimately, by definition, they they are the only two clubs in the world right now who are, are the only two European super clubs who are owned by uh, by states, uh, and they're they're owned by states for political purposes. Uh, I mean, uh, part of that is because of what football has grown into. Where, I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration at this point to say football is probably arguably the most. It crosses more borders than any cultural pursuit we've had in history. I, I genuinely don't think that's an exaggeration. I mean, it, well, I was having this debate with someone the other day. Like, is is Cristiano or, or Lionel Messi are they are they more universally famous? Say now at this point than Elvis or the Beatles? And they, they probably do cross more or any pop star you want to pick out today to be a bit more modern. Right. And it, 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 I think it's probably true because like they go to, in every corner of the earth they're going to be recognised. And it means that, I'm on a little bit of a tangent here, but it is, it is relevant. But it, mean, it means that football has grown to this size where it has immense economic capital, immense social capital, and as a result of all that, immense political capital. And that's why these states have basically bought these clubs, because they realise the power that owning a football club can do in terms... And, and, and it is ultimately about, I mean, especially as these, as these states move away from a reliance on oil. It's about maintaining their, or, or also improving their business relationships in the West. But of course, that comes with the uncomfortable questions about human rights abuses and the political intent of these countries. Uh, and, and, and that's ultimately what sports washing is. It's, I suppose it's, it, it's about, it, it's about ensure, ensuring they have a good rep, reputation to do business in the West without necessarily these questions being asked or what are some pr- pretty problematic political situations. And again, that's not to absolve anyone in the West. In, in the West, there are plenty of problems. We could point to, to, the, to the countries we're from as examples of that. But ultimately, uh, our, our governments, our states, aren't seeking to buy football clubs for these purposes. And it's why this is so problematic. It's, and it's, it's the use of social institutions that clubs are for purposes other than local representation or community representation and just playing football. And it's what, and like, it's why you couldn't have a clear example of this game, and why it's both problematic and, and you can't get away from it. It's interesting because, given the recent Gulf blockade uh, where Abu Dhabi and Qatar were on opposite sides, I mean, the, the hierarchies of these countries are going to be seeing this as not too far off, you know, a, a political exercise or you know, or propaganda, whatever you want to call it. But this is, this is going to be hugely important to the, to the international prestige of both countries. And they're not exactly going to like losing to the other, uh, should it come to it for one of them. Let's take a quick break from our interview with Miguel Delaney, and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga and France's Ligue 1, currently the best title races in Europe, 
and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system. You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Ligon, Copa Libertadores, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch top leagues from Austria, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports and English and Spanish, the women's soccer channel, ATA Football, Goal TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. It's interesting because, you know, next year, obviously the biggest event in the sport, the World Cup, will be taking place in Qatar, which has also been connected, you know, as part of this whole discussion to to sports washing, this, this attempt to use sports to try to burnish a reputation that, shall we say, needs burnishing. Um, how are you seeing things over the next year and a half as we head toward that World Cup in Qatar? And and how are you seeing some of the stuff like we saw from Norway with their national team and maybe not like we saw some other teams like Germany making some statements without going too far. Um, like, how are you viewing the how the football world seems to be approaching the Qatar World Cup right now? And how do you feel about that? So I think it's going to be very double-sided. And in fact, a point I sorry I should have just made just there was, it's not just about that these clubs are being used. What is also the next? What, what I mean, and, and that's bad enough in itself. The next step of this that I think is absolutely so crucial is that, and and why this is such an, and I think it's a really an issue that football is belatedly belatedly getting to grips with, and it could happen too late because we're already seeing Paris Saint Germain winning multiple titles. We're already seeing. You know, Manchester City potentially dominating English football to a greater degree than we ever before. It's it's the effect on the sport. I mean, I've I've written about this before, but I remember being told, and again, this is relevant to the Qatar World Cup as well. I was told by people close to the hierarchy in Paris Saint Germain that when they bought Neymar, it wasn't just about the prestige of buying a player like that or improving the team. There was also an implicit knowledge that, and we only have to look at the kind of the, the price of that where it's worth. It's still a world record and probably will be for some time. Uh, and and the wages where there was an implicit knowledge that if they basically jacked up prices and wages to a certain point, or as, as someone in finance put it to me, short squeezed the market, they knew that only a handful of clubs, one of them being Manchester City, who are similarly state owned, even if they even if they'll say it's Sheikh Mansour who's the ultimate owner, he is still part of the uh, Abu Dhabi royal family. I mean, there's very little disconnection there. Manchester United, who of course kind of. Uh, just a revenue-making empire of their own right, and they put on Chelsea. And beyond that, you you can already see the struggles of the Spanish clubs in trying to compete when they've got into huge financial areas. So it, it is about, it's also the effect on the sport that is, you know, huge and representative for so many people. And w- there is a greater danger than ever before of creating a really closed-off top field. And of course, tied to that, of course, it, it, this is a slightly different area, but it's really, it's... <laughs> Just when I was doing something on it last night and looking back at previous World Cups, 
I mean, and the World Cup for all its kind of flaws in the past, it's still quite. It's still ultimately the great, the great sporting party the world has. It has so much kind of joy and innocence about it, and creates great moments for every single country that's in it. And yet now, it, it just that's going to be sullied by the connections of what what this, which is a sports washing. B, there are still the questions about the uh, the manner it was won, given to the uh, the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, you know. What, where they they outright made accusations of bribery uh, last year, and also of course the the implicit nature of the tournament, given there there there's the ongoing issue of migrant worker rights in Qatar. So we have all this connected to what is you know the people's tournament, and it's quite it it it, it is usually problematic for me, and I have to say it's 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 it, it, it really it really spoils what it, what is our sport. Um, that it feels like it's being taken over by these interests where we can almost do nothing about it. And it's why I do think, to, to answer your question belatedly, I do think we will see the growth of more dissent. Whether it actually does something or something else, I think FIFA has already been really lax on this because, I mean, I've done a fair bit on this. And you talk, you talk to human rights uh, groups about this World Cup and they'll, like, the argument is always, should teams boycott? Which, of course one of the debates in Norway right now. And they'll say no, not, well, sir, I don't know if they'll say not yet, but they'll say no, not at the moment, because basically the World Cup itself is still a significant lever. FIFA still has power to cause huge change in Qatar, to, to really improve work to migrant rights, to, 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 to use this World Cup to have tangible change in the way that was argued when they first got it. But no, none of that has happened at the time. There's been virtually no change bar the cosmetic. Um, and I, I do think that'll grow, but... I suppose the more it grows, the more questions it provokes for the game. So we we, we already saw it when kind of when Norway protested. Where so so Erling Haaland's wearing the t-shirt. Yet two of the clubs that are interested in him this summer are Manchester City and Paris Saint Germain. And and I, I will prompt more of these questions. And previously, I have to say, I wouldn't have been. It, it's a difficult area area to get into to start criticizing players or managers for what club they work for, but. It's going to be it's, it, it, because ultimately, I suppose they only see football clubs and all, and all the rest of it. But the more this comes out, and especially in a world where we are very laudably taking the knee for racial equality, uh, where like in the case of Qatar, you couldn't have a greater case of racial inequality given the recent UN report about the uh, the the effect on workers there. So, I I think those questions will grow. The, I think protests will grow. But then the other side, it's also possible this effect in the game will grow because let's not forget. Had we not had the pandemic, there was a strong possibility FIFA was going to hold a Club World Cup in China, despite all the issues around Uyghur Muslims. And with that, I mean, the talk at the time was it was going to be backed by Saudi Arabian money. So, I mean, to go in full circle, this is the size that football has grown to where this is the world it's operating in. I'm I'm sort of famous on this podcast for having these discussions about football off the field and then having these jarring transitions back into asking about stuff <laughs> on the field oh, yeah. and and we're doing that right now here cuz I'm going to I want to ask you about you had this terrific interview recently with Thomas Mueller of Bayern Munich and he gave you some real insight into how he plays, how he makes his runs and and one of the takeaways was that he thinks this can be coached and drilled more than many people might expect. And it reminded me of a topic in my last book where it's about the craft of the sport and attacking players in that book argued that there were actual patterns in the modern game that get run on the field. 
Could you provide a little more detail about what Mueller explained to you and and your thoughts about what he said? Yeah, so he was absolutely fascinating. I mean, it, it was for it was me, Rob Draper, Jonathan Norcroft, and Tom Hamilton the, the interview, and he was just he was just in the sort of mood where he was just willing to talk. He was he was in really good good humor, um, and because I, I remember someone had pointed out to me before, which is I think how we initially got onto it that. When he was playing Ireland, I'm of course half Irish, in uh, in September 2013, and Germany absolutely thrashed Ireland. It was either six one or seven one. I can it's so bad I can't even remember what the final. I think it was six. Um, but a, a, a coach pointed out to me there was one specific run Muller made in that game where, and he kept making it, where every single time he basically took four Irish players out of the game, which is pretty impressive for one run that you keep doing. And I suppose when you stand back and you just see goals, and Muller suddenly appears out of nowhere. You kind of think, and it's a bit like with Haaland now. Oh, that must that must be instinct. They just, just they just it's that spatial awareness of where to go. So we put that to him and got into it. And he was talking about, no, it's just it's it's. I mean, it, it, it was interesting. The way he broke it down was fascinating because he really just pointed it to it's about it's it's just about repetition, discipline, keep making the same run over the time, and then you're you're capitalizing on. The nature of the sport, which is that a mistake will eventually happen, and that is really—I mean, I suppose when when you stand back a bit, that is really impressive relentlessness. Now, I suppose that's why he plays for Bayern Munich to have that, to that given given what they are as a club and how much they win, to have that sort of relentlessness. But he, he, he was really impressive, and 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 even the way he spoke about how, like, it was I think it was Johnny Northcroft who gave him the kind of uh, the the case study. Say, okay, explain to us now, you're in a position on the right. There's a left back. Who has the ball on the wing? What happens next? And he basically he 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 just started breaking down what happens in, in different situations. So if the left back goes there, goes to that ball, I'll make this run. If it comes inside, I'll run across the line and then quickly dart inside. And I suppose like he he breaks it down in a few simple sentences, but wrapped up in that, I suppose as you're saying, it's I mean I'd say there's, there's a little bit of natural talent for it. There's also repetition, there's discipline, there's tactical awareness, and there's also that kind of unspoken relationship with, with your teammate and I'm that kind of uh, just that, that that link that is almost intangible but uh, but it's clearly there I love that stuff and and I think Mueller is very good at explaining what he does smart guy um, you know when I did my last book I I, I, I wanted to get world-class players who are also really yeah. intelligent at the sport to explain what they did and I ended up doing using two other Bayern Munich guys Xabi Alonso and Manuel Neuer, so I didn't get Mueller involved. I kind of wish I had now, seeing the interview you got with him. Um, Who are some of the most thoughtful, world-class players or figures in the sport that you have interviewed over the years? Who have been some of your your best experiences doing that with? Well, it's interesting. Just just literally when he said that about Bayern Munich there, I I was just thinking there. I mean, this must be one of the reasons why they are they are what they are and then it's they're not they don't just trample over over um over everyone in germany by default but every single interview i've done with someone at bayern munich has been really impressive uh, and and they all think seem to think about the game in that way I, I, one of my favorite interviews actually this time last year or sorry it was actually it was just before the pandemic hit because i was over in munich for it but i interviewed tiago Al- alcantara and fair enough he hasn't had his his best season for liverpool this year but there's been all sorts of reasons for that outside his ability because I think he's still, for me, the best passing midfielder in the world. Uh, and he was absolutely a little bit like Muller in terms of how Muller broke down how he makes a run. Thiago was exceptional at breaking down when he when he has the ball in the middle of the pitch what he sees. And he started talking about how 
he uh, he, you know, he, he 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 almost doesn't see players. He sees shapes and movement, and just uh, I, I suppose it was just that kind of extra level of perception. By the same token, remember I interviewed Arjun Robin a few years before that. Neuer is, of course, and Lewandowski. The day I did that Thiago interview, I was envious myself because some of my colleagues had interviewed uh, Robert Lewandowski. The same sort of thing. He he was just absolutely brilliant at breaking down what makes a great finisher. Uh, I suppose it's interesting, actually. You mentioned kind of people you've been engaged with or you're engaged by, and it's almost one of the pities of this. Um, I've, I've mentioned this a few times over the last while. But I think it's so. It's almost such a pity about what's becoming a Mourinho and how 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 testy he is in the media. One of my favourite moments was actually in a press conference, and it was only about eight of us there. Uh, I was it was in Cobham, Chelsea's uh, press centre, uh, on a Friday afternoon, and Mourinho he was about to win the title. It was his last league title in twenty fourteen fifteen. But he was, so he was in a relaxed mood, and it was the week of when Messi absolutely destroyed Bayern Munich. And because Mourinho was in a relaxed form and there's only a few of us there, he, we started just having a, a chat, basically, about Leo Messi. And you could just, you could see the depth of Mourinho's football intelligence, where he starts talking about, you know, how you stop Messi or how you try to stop him. And this is absolutely peak Messi, of course. Um, what any team can try and do, the kind of mental effects of this. And, it, and even Messi is a concept. And it was absolutely brilliant. And it, it's something I... It's almost a pity you don't see more of that from Mourinho, especially these days, because it was just a, it was basically an insight into a historically good manager. Um, but then I suppose my ultimately my, my I suppose my favourite interview can't really escape this one is uh, Johan Cruyff. Uh, I interviewed him in twenty thirteen, and he was just I mean, like talk about concepts. <laughs> he, he, he he was remarkable, uh, and, and again someone someone I suppose that. You you ask him a question on football and you just couldn't possibly begin to predict his uh, what answer he's going to give you because I mean I suppose what made him as a as a career and I suppose why he's almost like the David Bowie of football and that not just a historic great but immensely influential in his own right arguably football's most influential ever figure is that he's just almost capable of a deeper level of comprehension or thinking about the game in a different way. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish I had had the chance to interview Cruyff. Never did, but uh, just anytime I would read things did, that he said, did you interview Maradona? Incredible. You know, I didn't. I didn't interview Maradona. I my my the closest I ever got was 2010 at uh, yeah. a few months before the World Cup, and um, I have it in writing. They literally asked me for a hundred thousand euros. <laughs> Well, <laughs> <laughs> on like official Argentine Federation, like yeah, uh, yeah. the well. press officer. <laughs> so okay, that was that was unfortunate that I didn't get it because I, I I always wanted to interview Maradona, but yeah, yeah, didn't happen yeah. in the end. Like I was about to say, well, just I mean, the obviously his passing is 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 very sad beyond any but an extra poignancy for us as journalists i suppose is that that's always someone you as a legend maybe the greatest figure in history of war you would want to have interviewed at some point uh but that's interesting maybe i'll have a bit less regret about it it's interesting funnily enough a, a, a colleague i remember tried tried to interview a particular former brazil manager it didn't quite go to a hundred thousand but one of the stipulations was something like some ludicrous <laughs> fee but also a hotel in miami or something like that um, so yeah, he, he he couldn't go there. I mean, ethically, of course, he couldn't go there. But uh, he, he, even right, he didn't right. have the ethics. I don't. I... <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're winding down here with Miguel Delaney. Really appreciate you taking this much time. Um, 
I, I wanted to get a little bit into just sort of your story. I know you're, you're part Irish, you're part Spanish, but what is your story? How did you get to where you are now at The Independent? Uh, so I, I well, yeah, despite the name, but I suppose as people may be able to tell from the accent, I grew up in Ireland. Um, so I always, always had summers in Spain and all the rest of it. Our, our local team in Spain is Osasuna. My mum's from Navarra. Um, but, so I, I, but I grew up in Dublin and I studied journalism in, in Dublin, I, ultimately, I suppose, I mean, I ended up, I did a master's in politics, but I really always wanted to be a football journalist. <laughs> it was, once I couldn't be a footballer, yeah, I wanted to be, a, it was always there. Um, and it, I suppose it was one of those things I just, I, I, I did aim for it, I have to say, and kind of one of those things that kind of thankfully happens organically, but with a bit of intention, because I do, like, in in, our, in the fourth year of our, our degree, uh, or I suppose you call it a minor, um, but uh, we were we were brought on a on a on a day trip our 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 course to the Irish uh, the the newspaper the Sunday Tribune which sadly no longer exists like it was it was I suppose the Irish version of the Observer in the UK and it was just me and another guy went up to the sports department and got got chatting to them and they basically um, asked for experience luckily enough when I finished my I finished my thesis that summer weirdly by coincidence the sports editor Philip Lanigan rang me and said, we've got some shifts if you want to come in. And I kind of jumped it. I was meant to go away for that entire summer, but basically put it off and jumped at the chance. And kind of from, this was 2004, it was the summer of Euro 2004. And kind of from there, I just kind of suppose, you know, worked on sub-editing at the time and having, like a, I didn't, <laughs> having to do sports I'd never had any interest in or kind of, you know, work on them like rugby, for example, which I didn't even know. The, in fact, the first match I ever covered just purely because there was more scope for it. It was was a, a, an Irish school's rugby game. And I remember having to look up the rules before, uh, uh, the night before I went to it, which I suppose is pretty telling. But, you know, this all, all in the course of trying to be a football journalist. But I suppose I kind of just hung around. And so by uh, gradually, they, they let me write. And so that kind of, it evolved into, the first tournament they did was Euro 2008. First Champions League final was the 2009 one in Rome. And then I went to the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. All of these were for a Sunday newspaper, which uh, is a concept that feels very alien today, given I mean, going, to, going to those tournaments and something because it meant basically also because of the nature of the, the way the game. So if you want to write something about a Sunday, you couldn't exactly work on it on a Monday or Tuesday even because they'd have a game on the Thursday. So it would change everything. So it was a much more relaxed experience to, to these days of 24-7 internet. Uh, but, but sadly, I suppose the, the newspaper was a, was a victim of the... Um, 2008 economic crash and kind of finally went out of business in 2011. Uh, I, I mean, it, when I was working for the for the newspaper, I used to kind of they used to send me over to England a lot. And Ireland has basically always treated the Premier League as almost like its own league because you know you know as a former colony of England, there's all there's all that sort of kind of uh, cultural cross uh, cross integration. Um, so I I'd been sent over a lot. And it was always on my mind to move over to London. And I, I'd all, so once the, once the Tribune went, I kind of uh, I was working as a freelancer for, for a while. I I, I when when I kind of took a little bit of a punt and went to Euro 20, 2012 as a freelancer. I think that's the first time we met actually. Yeah, at a Trapattoni press conference. Yeah. Um, but uh, and I I look look enough. I got a lot of work out of it and moved to London that summer. Started working for uh, the Independent. Uh, like on a regular basis, and then within a few years, I was fortunate enough that I'm in the position I am now, which is uh, yeah, yeah, keeping me busy. 
<laughs> Miguel Delaney is the chief football writer for The Independent in the United Kingdom. You can find him on Twitter at Miguel Delaney. Miguel, one of my joys of covering this sport is the global aspect of it, getting to meet people from all over the football world. That includes you, uh, and it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks, Grant. No problem at all. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Miguel Delaney as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm -hmm.